0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $135 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with two portfolio managers on our international growth team, Elisa Mazin, who's head of global growth, and Pavel Robleski. And the topic of today's podcast is how technology is driving global disruption. Thank you both for joining me in the booth today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Elisa, it's hard to imagine, but it's been a year since, uh, since we've had you here. Wow. <laughs> Quite a lot has changed in that year, but uh, some things actually haven't changed. And one of the things that haven't changed is growth's outperformance of value. Now, a lot of people think it's just a U.S. phenomenon, but you've actually been seeing it in the international space as well. And ground zero for that outperformance has been information technology. Now, I know that your team has a pretty big overweight to information technology. Obviously, that's a benefit of being an active manager. Can you walk me through um, how you look for finding these best technology stocks in your portfolio?
1: Sure. Okay. Uh, Well, maybe let's first start off with the framework and how we invest for the portfolio. So, as you know, we're growth investors. We're very mindful of valuation and risk, and we Construct our portfolios to keep our risk around benchmark levels, so we know that growth stocks can be expensive. They have high valuations, which can bring the potential for volatility if these companies that are investing for growth, including technology companies, perhaps miss sort of market expectations. Risk is something we take very seriously from stock selection, position sizing, which we think is very important, and portfolio construction. We like to incorporate risk at all levels of our process.
0: And you even have a risk management team at ClearBridge that Correct. that even oversees that, so an additional layer.
1: Correct. So the stocks that we invest in should always have growth characteristics. That means revenue, earnings and trade at a discount to their intrinsic value. So we invest in high-quality growth stocks. We build portfolios through a systematic bottom-up fundamental process. And naturally, we focus on where there are industries and regions where there is more growth, and we underweight areas where there's less. Technology is obviously a place where we think that there is rather more. So while it's true we are currently overweight technology, if you look back at our portfolio, you'll see over time, historically, the portfolio has always been overweight technology. It's uh, the relative weight is a bit larger uh, today, um, and this overweight has really been driven by relative stock performance. But I think what's important to note is that we actually have been taking some of some money off the table in 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 some of those stocks as well. Is
0: it because of the run that technology has had? <laughs>
1: It is that, but it's also really trying to understand if you drill down underneath um, the sector, let's say allocation, you look at the sub-industries. So within that, there are different levels of risk in each of those different industries. You have um, internet, you have semiconductors, which is more cyclical, and software, and semis which are
0: more, more, more risky, obviously. Correct.
1: So where we've been taking actually some money off the table has been in the semiconductor space, which we mm-hmm. consider to be cyclical and we consider to be rather toppy. So we have been taking some money off the table, but if you look at the portfolio today, where it's allocated or relatively overweight is in software and very diversified among different types of businesses. So we think these are good long-term compounders. They have very different end market uh, demand drivers. Um, and we feel very comfortable with where our technology stocks are today.
0: Great. Yeah, I think software obviously is an area where you, you found outperformance in the U.S. space as well. And I, if You think about secular growth themes, you know themes that are going to go on for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, I think software is is going to be one of those areas that that you absolutely. find that absolutely. Um, so, I know that you look at uh, the growth buckets and uh, you, you differentiate companies based on the, their profiles, and you have three different growth buckets in the portfolio. Um, tell me a little bit about each one of those buckets, maybe the, the characteristics of of them, and uh, maybe a, a technology company that that fits the, the the bill for one of those buckets?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, I think, again, when we think about these buckets, um, each of them we think has different risk characteristics, and we want to be very diversified within any sector that we invest in. We don't want to be in all emerging growth, let's say. So we want to have a diversified group of stocks within different sector allocations. So um, as you know, growth, we believe, is not a one-size-fits-all term growth has different sort of risk characteristics. Sure. So the way that we think about it is uh, we have three different buckets. We call it emerging growth, secular growth, and structural growth. And we think um, by having a portfolio – Uh, of uh, sort of a a broad allocation in in each of those different buckets. First of all, it allows us to participate in many different type of market environments, but it also allows us to control risk. So it has really two functions. It's really to make sure we participate in different market environments, but it also is really a risk control measure.
0: Right. So if you have a high beta market, um, I would imagine a lot of the emerging growth stocks are going to outperform. But if you, you go into more of a risk off scenario which the market is prone to very often. Absolutely. Um, Maybe the the secular growth stories will give you that downside protection.
1: Correct. So each of those buckets has very specific parameters as to how large we will let that get. Uh, Also, when we think about position sizing, which I had mentioned earlier— um you know you'll think about maybe some of your smaller cap emerging market stocks in in smaller weights so we we look at many of these different things maybe let me quickly describe each of those three groupings sure. so emerging growth these are early stage growth companies there is significant upside if these stocks are 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 successful um but they're riskier and they're more volatile there are large market opportunities they tend to be disruptors very very high top line growth um, but at earlier stages of their growth, and they invest with growth. Sometimes if
0: they don't hit that top line, they can be punished very quickly correct. or vice versa.
1: Correct. So we go 0 to 20%. And again, it's very valuation dependent. Secular growth is the largest bucket at any period of time in the portfolio. Well-established companies winning products or business models. Um, these are good long-term compounders. Revenue uh, growth above the market, but usually earnings growth that is even above revenue growth. Forty to sixty percent. Mm-hmm. They really do provide stability to the portfolio, and then the residual of that allocation is in what we call structural growth. So this includes well-established businesses where we think there is a a change in the trajectory of earnings from maybe not growing to growing very quickly, and the market doesn't really um, correctly anticipate that.
0: So maybe like a like a turnaround story. Like there's been some news that's come out that's put maybe a black cloud over the, the, the stock. It's taken a beating. And it's primed to, to rebound.
1: Correct. Um, within technology, typically we see a lot of um, some of the, the secular sort of stories, let's say, uh, in in software, as an example, that maybe had stalled in terms of their growth. Um, and then there's some new drivers going on. So we see them as being sort of structural changes in terms of the earnings trajectory, but there is usually a long-term compounding mechanism behind that.
0: Now, Pavel, can you give me uh, maybe an example of a, of a stock in that falls into one of those three buckets?
2: Sure, of course. Um, so Temenos would be a good example of our secular uh, growth company. That's a Swiss software developer for the banking industry. The core product is called T24. Uh, it's the most uh, adop- adopted third-party software for for banks. Okay. And what they benefit from is really an ongoing secular shift from uh, third-party, sorry, from in-house IT systems to third-party uh, software systems. Uh, as you probably know, most of the banks today rely on very old, inefficient legacy IT systems. This, very yeah, the Swift system
0: is antiquated. All
2: Yeah. yeah the, these systems don't allow them to compete with new online entrants. It's very hard for them to comply with more and more complex regulation. So they really need to cut costs. They really need to uh, adapt more more efficient IT systems. And this is where Temenos comes in. Um, but only about 20% of the banking industry has moved to third-party systems. So it's very early on this uh, secular uh, outsourcing trend.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty nice growth trajectory. Right.
1: right. I mean, if you look at things like the ERP software space, I mean, that's typically very well adopted among, you know, many SAP, etc. You have very, very high adoption rate. People don't try to develop their own ERP system. So we think that when we see a lot of these banking stocks, um, which generally have been created through um, multiple, multiple mergers, there's lots and lots of legacy systems to try to... It's really just easier to rip it out and install one Temino system.
0: I'm sure it's quite a headache <laughs> to Absolutely. go through all of those layers. But once you do it, um, it's a much smoother and more efficient and, and most importantly, cheaper uh, proposition. Absolutely. Um, any other examples for for the other two buckets?
2: Uh, so in the structural growth bucket, for example, we have recently invested in a, in a company in China called Baidu. The previous management has made a number of strategic mistakes. Uh, they have diversified the business into a lot of non-core assets and that depressed the earnings and the growth of the company. Uh, we are really encouraged with the new new strategy new management which was really cleaning up the portfolio uh and focusing on AI and search and all the, the core competencies of the company. Co- company. so that's why we we put it into a structural growth bucket it's a really a restructuring a restructuring story right now for us
0: so a, a big turnaround story correct great um and and one area of the world that that I think is maybe a restructuring story, if you will is China, Um, obviously, with the consolidation of leadership for the next five years, a purging of the corruption. uh, Leadership is trying to restructure and reorient that economy from uh, more of a manufacturing-led economy to a consumer-led economy. But China, believe it or not, has some of the most dominant emerging technology companies that are outside, out there outside of Silicon Valley. Um, A lot of these are very key to the Made in China 2025 initiative uh, that Jing Xiaoping has come out with. Um, and two at the forefront are Alibaba and Tencent. So Correct. what's really driving this trend?
2: Uh, look, there are really several reasons why uh, we have so many great tech companies in, in China. Uh, I think, first of all, uh, national policies are very supportive, right? Um, Chinese leadership traditionally has been very supportive to national champions in all, in all sectors, but they want to really develop their own tech uh, ecosystem. Uh, secondly, human talent. Um, China has a large pool of uh, talented entrepreneurs, engineers, uh, scientists and and so on.
0: Well, I think uh, there's been 4.5 million undergraduates in STEM technology over the last correct. decade, which is light years ahead of any other country that's out there.
2: That's true. And if you look at the patent applications, for example, by by country, China is already number two, and soon would be probably number one. Mm-hmm. So they're really moving on on the innovation innovation front.
0: Yeah, it's, it's neck and neck right now, right? With patents, I think maybe next year they may so it might surpass the U.S. That's that's correct.
2: That's just amazing. Look, also, there are other drivers. I mean, it's a very big market. So if you have a very successful uh, business model, you scale up very quickly, right? And you have very defensive uh, scale economies. Um, I also think culture and language barriers are important. If you, if you develop a product which is very uh, customized for the local market, you, 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 you can win. Um, it's a very, um, you, that, these things favor local companies versus multinationals.
0: Sure. Um, so talk to me about maybe Tencent. Um, Tencent is a, a name that I hear floating around there <laughs> quite a bit. Um they aren't just a one trick pony they have their tentacles in a lot of different businesses. Why do you like that That's company? That's true.
2: That's true. Um so look they are um uh, a leader in uh, gaming, China. If you if you probably know, it's the biggest gaming market in uh, in, in the world and the fastest growing uh, gaming market in the world. I, I did know that. I'm that's, kind of I'm that's kind of a video nerd.
1: gaming, not, that's, not that's online gaming.
0: Online, online gaming, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this. The World Championships for e gaming uh, happened mm-hmm. uh, very recently between Korea and mm-hmm. the U.S. Correct. And the winning team took home twenty million dollars. Yeah, and people were paying a thousand dollars a ticket to go to this event. And it might be even higher than a Super Bowl ticket. So gaming is a very big trend.
2: Correct. But where Tencent really uh, succeeded is in developing games which are really customized for the local market. So many of the games are based on local characters, local legend, legends and, and traditions, right? Uh, so they were not really able to be uh, produced by outsiders. Um, their uh, gaming library now accounts for about 40% of gaming in, in China. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they develop about 20 new games a year.
0: That's a that's a lot of reduction. I think that I don't know what Electronic Arts does, but I would imagine it's probably less than twenty.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at combined revenues of Electronic Arts and Activision, I think Tencent beats them by a factor of two, so it's way, way bigger.
0: Wow, are they in any other types of businesses?
2: So they use the the profits from the online gaming industry to develop a number of, number of other successful uh, businesses. They now run the largest social media network in China called WeChat. WeChat
0: is, um, is that like uh, the Facebook of It's of a bit China? Like, a,
2: like a Facebook, right? Okay. Uh, they also have a type of a Netflix business, which is video on demand. Uh, they also have music on demand, um, many other ventures where they are very early in, in monetizing them. So we think there's a huge room for for growth for them.
0: It seems like 10 cent is just Fang under one company, <laughs> if you think about it.
2: It
1: it, it really is. It takes um, a lot of different types of businesses that we've seen and puts them together in different places. Same thing with Alibaba. Um, there's a lot of different businesses within there, and some of them are at much earlier stages of their growth. So they usually have a, a cash cow that they sort of take and, and redeploy into new places, which eventually will continue to keep the earnings and the top line growth growing.
0: Similar to Amazon. Correct. Yeah, and, and isn't uh, Alibaba like the, the Amazon of China, essentially? Don't they ship a lot of goods and services?
2: I would say it's even better because their market share in uh, domestic e-commerce is larger. They have something like 70% market share in China, whereas Amazon in here has about 30% market share, so they're much more dominant.
0: That's amazing.
2: Right. And uh, earlier on in the growth phase as well, right? the online penetration is still growing, smartphone penetration is still growing. Chinese are shopping on their smartphones, as you, as you know.
0: Well, they didn't have to go through the brick-and-mortar phase that That's we did right. here in the U.S., right? I mean,
1: that really did allow them to be very successful very early. There really wasn't a well-established retail Sort of environment so it really allowed them to kind of leapfrog uh, that very very quickly
2: right and they are also expanding into other regions they now have some leading e-commerce platforms in some asian countries uh, they're also expanding into cloud computing, into uh, cloud storage. They have a fantastic uh, online uh, services business called Alipay. So again, it's uh, it's a very diversified conglomerate right now.
0: Well, cloud storage, I know that's a big moneymaker for the Microsofts and the Amazons of the world. So um, I would imagine in the not too distant future, once uh, Alibaba goes a little bit more international, that... They're going to be bumping up against one another.
1: Well, really, um, what you're seeing with China is China is requiring domestic uh, companies to actually host their products in the domestic cloud. So it's not so there is almost a natural sort of runway for them to actually drive business for a very long period of time.
0: Well, Also, if you think about what the long term objectives of this leadership is, one belt, one road. Correct. There's a whole host of countries and economies that uh, these two leaders will be able to, to delve into over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, so I know we've talked about a couple of the, the bigger, well-known names that are out <laughs> there. Um, but your universe is, is pretty big. I think at last count, the MSCI ACQUI and its small cap equivalent hold over 6,000 companies. Uh, that's, that's a lot of companies to, to be able to go through. Uh, but you have a proprietary quant model that helps you narrow your focus a lot more. So tell me a little bit about the model. How does it uh, promote a valuation approach to growth and guide you to the best opportunities in technology?
1: Sure. So um, we do believe that our factor model is an important tool in our research process, and it really does allow us to set sort of our research agenda uh, for the fundamental work we do. So everything that we do in terms of buying a stock is really proved out through fundamental work. But identifying ideas in a very, very large universe of names can be complicated Um, across sectors, across geographies, across market caps. We really want to understand sort of what's moving. So a model is really the only systematic way to really understand what's going on with a very large sort of universe of stocks across each different sector, country, uh, and market cap.
0: And to dive deep into (laughs) 6,000 stocks would take uh, literally an army.
1: Right. (laughs) So the way that we've constructed the model is how we like to think about stocks. Again, evaluation approach to growth. So the model has a multi-factor model, and it's weighted roughly – 50% 50% in valuation factors and quality and then 50% in earnings growth and price momentum. So it allows us to see a lot of different pieces of data in sort of, you know, in a very sort of robust format. So we call it a very data rich model. We look at this on a monthly basis, we evaluate this data on a monthly basis and we set our research sort of priorities here. Now, one of the things I'll say, um, we use the same factors across the sectors, across countries, etc. Um, but one of the things we've done with our model is we've back-tested those factors across each individual sector. We know, okay. as an example, that within technology, valuation doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. Um, so we do try to you know, really look at each sector that we're covering and really look at what factors really do express very well and really try to fine-tune that when we're looking at the individual stocks that we're seeing in the model to to really identify sort of shortlist ideas. But there's really no other way to be systematic in looking at the universe beside a model, frankly, and we think every investment process should have one.
0: And, and how does it do it? Is it just, like, stack rank them? Um,
1: right. So we weight all of the factors that we utilize um, – uh, and then we rank it one through a hundred. So with one being the most interesting, a hundred maybe being the less the least interesting. But we actually generally go through the entire um the entire model, one through a hundred, just to look and see because of the data that's provided in that model, we can see even an expensive stock may have really interesting. Uh, Earnings momentum, and we see that in the model. So then we can look at it and say, is this a structural story? You know, what may be going on here? So it just allows us to see a lot of different data points. Um, in one very concise format.
0: It just narrows down that universe. And then obviously you can dig deeper to Correct. see whether there's you know, an actual story here and a catalyst that's Absolutely. going to lead to a turnaround. And
1: then what really helps is to be looking at this every month. How are these things changing? How are they moving in terms of their ranking? Is there something happening up and down, not just with prices, but also with uh, with earnings changes. So it's it's something that we think is is an incredibly useful tool.
0: Now, if you think about technology, right, it's all about disruption. Uh, right. Creative destruction, as, as some would call it, it happens uh, it's decade after decade, and creative destruction is just the natural part of capitalism. Uh, I know you and the team uh, wrote a white paper on electric vehicles a couple of years ago as a disruptor or potential disruptor in the auto industry. Um, what else are you seeing as a major disruptor out there Uh, And are you participating in any of those types of innovations?
2: Yeah, good good question. So, correct. About two years ago, we have uh, published a note uh, in which we discussed the lithium-ion technology and uh, the outlook for electric cars. And in there, we argued that electric cars will be disruptive. Um, They're just better. They have better performance and much lower cost of ownership than uh, traditional cars.
0: Yeah, they they are very quick.
2: They're very quick. Um, And it's really driven by the lithium-ion technology, which is an exponential technology, which means that it has a very steep learning curve. That means that lithium-ion is improving every year by a factor of 15-20% in terms of dollar cost per kilowatt. Oh, wow. So that, that basically means every year we can build cheaper and ch- cheaper electric cars. And once you own an EV, uh, of course, it is better and cheaper to charge and to maintain.
0: It's kind of like a TV's, like a couple of years ago. You used to buy a TV, very expensive, and then three years later, you can right. get a better TV for, for even cheaper.
2: Correct, correct. But you know, to be to be very clear, we are very early at this uh, at this uh, kind of a growth stage here for EVs. EV sales are growing 60 percent a year globally, and wow. for only about let's say two percent of global sales. So we are really at the early innings of the growth. The
0: uh, the the beginning part of the J curve, or whatever, if you if you will. Correct. And it, doesn't China have a uh, a very big push to clean up the environment, and they're 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 subsidizing a lot of these electric vehicles? That's
2: correct. They have very attractive subsidies, and now they are pushing subsidies for larger, longer range electric cars, which will accelerate the growth of the industry. But what we have done we have actually identified a lot of companies in the supply chain to, to EVs, which benefit from the growth. Okay. So companies, for example, that supply components to lithium-ion batteries or uh, components to electric motors. That's where we see a lot of uh, value.
0: Any, any company in particular that you like?
2: Uh, so we have several, but for example, we own a Belgian uh, company called Umicore. Uh, they are the producer of uh, cathodes for lithium-ion batteries. Cathode is really the secret source of the battery. This is where you can make improvements of energy density. Uh, where you can reduce the cost of the battery by uh, tweaking the chemicals, uh, chemistry of the, of the battery. Um, Umico right now is expanding the capacity by a factor of six times. There's so oh. much demand.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. they're probably gonna still be behind the curve if, uh, right. you're growing 50, 60% per year. That, that's probably true. It's probably nice compounding.
1: I mean, what I mean, one of the things that we track is where is electric vehicle penetration relative to those expectations that we set, you know, that we established two years ago. Um, and frankly, they're they're continuing to beat it. And we think market consensus is actually still behind that. So the market continually does not want to believe that this will be successful. They don't want to believe that Tesla will be successful, and so on and so on. And so what we've been able to do is, you know, maintain our conviction on that, track what's happening with electric vehicle penetration across geographies, and really invest in not only the technology sector, but also other sectors. Umicore is a material stock. Um, uh, we own a, a company called Voltabox, which is an industrial. So um, we we find a lot of different angles to be able to sort of participate in that growth um, rather than, you know, just the technology sector.
0: I think a lot of people forget, too, that it's a lot cheaper to drive an EV when you just need to charge it versus paying for gasoline. There's virtually no maintenance because you don't have many moving parts. Okay. So uh, and last That's but not least, I think the stigma of an electric vehicle being not cool has been erased with, with Tesla they really kind of changed the, the perception, at least uh, from the U.S. consumer standpoint.
2: Correct. And the other uh, benefit of EVs, which is uh, emerging now as we have more data, is that they last very long. I mean, because a few moving parts, the EV can last 30,0, 400,000 miles, so way longer than an ICE car. So if you think of fleets and how they think about the economics of operating a fleet, they will be shifting to EVs with, with, with relief.
0: Yeah, if you could get twice as much mileage out of a vehicle, it's obviously going to be a lot cheaper. Or,
1: or four or five times. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, it really changes how you think about the automotive industry, you know, many, many, many things sort of follow on from that. I mean, even even the energy space. I mean, when you think that gasoline consumption is really driven by cars.
0: Yeah, about half of it. Yeah.
1: It's um, it's something to really consider.
0: Now, are you doing anything in the robotic space? I know that's a, a, a very interesting area for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I watched a lot of movies as a kid. Um, what... Uh, where are you seeing disruptive changes there? Yeah, so
2: there's a lot of exciting things happening in automation, robotics. You mentioned uh, what kind of technologies we are monitoring. We're looking at all these exponential technologies where the learning curve is very steep. So semiconductor industry is really the most obvious one with this more low. But of course, other technologies are also improving every year, like sensors, solar cells, uh, wireless data, and so on and so forth. So if you think automation, what we are seeing right now is a big penetration of better sensors. Sensors are very cheap, they can be combined with better computing power, uh, with more sophisticated uh, vision algorithms, and you you make robots really smart. They can see people around them, and they are, for example, safer to work with with people. So what it means, we are seeing more um, applications for robots. They can work in the medical industry, logistics industry. Uh, and that drives growth for many companies in the, in the supply
0: chain. Yeah, a lot of people are nervous about robots taking over. But if you look at the countries that have adopted robotics, uh, China, uh, Japan, China, uh, Korea, um, you don't see a lot of unemployment there. Robotics just make them a little bit more productive.
1: Well, I think a lot of that really stemmed from sort of the demographic issue that you see in many of those countries, right? I mean, robots really were invented in Japan to really deal with an aggressively aging population, and sort of a lack of, of, of sort of basic help. So, you know, the robot really functioned as as, as a helper.
0: As a, as a need.
1: Correct. At the end of the day. Correct, right, right, right.
0: Well, I know um, a lot of these technology stocks, um, they, they have high growth, right? So, obviously, you want to be in front of that, but they, they do have a lot of risk, if Correct. you think about it as well, volatility. Um, how do you manage risk in the sector of, of IT? And also, tell me a little bit about your cell discipline that, that mm-hmm. offers
2: support here. Great question. So, we think of risk uh, all the time, um, and we control risk on a, on a number of levels, really. Uh, on a stock level, portfolio level, we also have corporate uh, risk oversight, as you as you talked before. Uh, on a stock level, of course, we have a valuation approach to growth, uh, which means we avoid investing in overvalued companies. We tend to focus on companies with very strong fundamentals, um, low balance sheet debt, uh, low operating gearing, companies that, in our view, typically would do better in a, in a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also set target prices for every company we have and we react when share prices move up by trimming or, or, or selling.
0: Now, is, is, if the, the information changes, though, that, that price could change as well, though,
2: correct? That's right. So every company has a very company-specific investment thesis and if the milestones do work in, in, in favor, as we expected, then we might upgrade the target price and keep the stock for, for longer. Okay. On a portfolio, portfolio level, we are very careful about position sizes to, to adjust the position size of a company to the kind of the risk profile of the company. And uh, as Lisa discussed, we run a very diversified portfolio by sectors, by regions, and also by the buckets of growth. Right. So the more riskier companies in the emerging growth bucket will be typically uh, smaller in size.
1: The other thing that we think about um, when we think about sector allocations, etc., and not just in technology, is when we look at those over and underweights. We we don't make a decision to say we we think we know that this is a great sector and so we're going to be there. I mean everything is very built bottom up. But one of the things we look at is something called factor risk. So factor risk is something that it's a risk that you can't predict. Can you predict which way a currency is going? Can you predict which way a country is going to go? It's very difficult to do it. We don't actually think we're very good at that. We do think we're good stock pickers. Mm -hmm. So that's what we want to express in the portfolio all the time. So how do we measure that? We measure that through factor risk and factor risk versus the stock picking risk. So we want to see stock picking risk within our total risk budget to be at least two-thirds or more of the total risk. So if we are very overweight technology or healthcare, etc., we look at how big is, is is that really going through our factor risk budget? Is it too high rel- because we have too much exposure in this particular area? If it is, we will look at that and we will bring that back down. Um, I think uh, what's interesting to note about where our factor risk is today and where it's trended over the past year is it's actually been coming down from Let's call it about that 30 percent level to even lower. So today, even though we have some of these um, overweight in in certain spaces, um, the factor risk is currently around 20 percent of the total risk budget.
0: And I think a lot of portfolio managers, they get get into trouble when they think they have a portfolio of something and they have a factor risk that they just didn't see. And it's an outside risk and it it really runs against them. Uh, But based on the performance that uh, you have had, um, it looks like you're managing risk very well. But I get bounced all the time that we have here today. Um, I really uh, appreciate you both being in the booth with me. And again, thank you all for for listening. Hope you've been able to take a couple of uh, interesting tidbits away about the IT sector and its opportunity abroad. This is Jeff Schulze for CFA. Thank you very much for listening. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 7th, 2018. And may differ from other portfolio managers or the firm and are not intended to be a forecast of future events a guarantee of future results or investment advice any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed neither clearbridge investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information